electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead today on The Exchange, is the coast really all clear? Inflation overseas falling sharply. The Nasdaq up 20% from its lows. Oil popping 6% this week. Is the market giving us the all clear or not? That's the question we are looking to answer today. We'll read the tea leaves in the options market as trading activity picks up in the VIX and high-yield areas. Wolf's Chris Senek and our own Mike Santoli will tell us whether you can really trust the tech rebound or if this is just a quick bull sprint in a bear market. And what happened to the safety trade? Healthcare is the worst performing set, one of the worst performing sectors so far this year. And our investor says the upside in big pharma is capped. He'll tell us where he is looking for safety and some upside. But first, let's get over to Dom Chu with today's market moves, Dom. All right. So if you take a look at what's happening, Kelly, I mean, it's mixed right now, as you can see, right? But we're tilting towards session lows. We've drifted now negative for the Dow Industrials. We're up about 184 points at the highs of the session. But 4,016, that's the level some traders are watching right now. We're still holding above that. That's that 50-day average price on a rolling basis. Now, we're up 10 points right now, as you can see here. But at the highs of the session, we were up 30 points. And at the lows, up around 8. So just tilting towards the low end there. And, of course, that tech trade is really playing out. One thing I want to look at is what's happening with the semiconductors. We are seeing some relative strength there, so that tech trade still playing out. It's still up about, it's still, look look at it. It's solidly above its 50-day and 200-day moving averages. You can see there the white and orange lines. So we're still seeing some relative strength in semiconductors. That might be a decent sign. We'll see if it holds. And then one stock that's really got my attention, EVGO. Really? It's not the biggest of companies out, but look at this, look at this move. EV charging company, EV charging company, it's up 22%, smaller than expected loss for the quarter. Better than expected revenues. And those revenues, by the way, up 283% from the same quarter last year. So business demand is picking up. Again, smaller company, but it still shows some of that growth that some investors are looking for. EVGO shares up 23%. Mirrors, by the way, some of the momentum we've seen in Tesla. We'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to just highlight what an unusual and unexpected quarter it's really been to start the year. I mean, all of the stuff that was supposed to do the best has actually been the worst. Financials uh, down 7% this quarter. Energy down 6%. I mean, this was supposed to be a rate beneficiary. This was supposed to be a China reopening story. Value trade, <laughs> right? Value These trade. are all value Absolutely. sectors. Absolutely. So look at healthcare too. We'll have more on that in a moment. Down about 6%. You might have to be my clearing guy, Dom. I'm going to clear Meanwhile, right here. tech is the best performer, soaring 20%, followed by the tech-heavy communication services space. Dom, we'll have more on that in just a moment. Sure. Consumer discretionary as well. One of the biggest outperformers, as we were just discussing, has been semis. NVIDIA up 87% this year. AMD 52%. The SMH, and this is why we focus on it, usually a leading Engage highest level dominant nearly a year. Absolutely. And not just for the technology sector, but then the technology sector, by extension, a leading indicator for the rest of the market. So you're looking for those kind of initial steps, the early reads. Absolutely. You mentioned EVGO a second ago. Tesla is one of the best stocks, the best stock in consumer discretionary, up 60 percent year to date, followed by Royal Caribbean. Wind Resorts, this rounds us out with gains of more than 30 
5%. Big moves for sure. See you in a moment. You got it. In the meantime, if the semis are leading the way and stocks are shrugging off the banking issues, does that mean we are actually in the clear? Let's ask Chris Murphy. He's co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. He'll give us the pulse of the option space. And Nuveen Sarah Malik says don't get too excited about the good news just yet. She'll reveal her new recession hedge in just a moment. Welcome to you both. Chris, you are seeing some signs of optimism here, at least in the short term. Sure. I mean, not only optimism, just um, volatility in general, just, you know, coming in a lot, you know, maybe surprising to hear, but the last three days of this week, the S&P has traded in a less than 1% open to close intraday range. That's the first time we've had three straight days since the market peaked um, at the very beginning of 2022. So it's been over a year since we've had this kind of intraday calm. And when things start to calm down in general, um, you know, people get a little bit more optimistic about their stocks. And we were reminded, you know, the Fed has not really been the market's friend for over a year. Um, but when the going got really tough with the banks, um, you know, we were kind of reminded that um, at the end of the day, um, the Fed and its balance sheet is there to protect the market. So that really, I think, calmed people down. And where else are you fee- uh, seeing bullish flow, bullish signs? Well, you know, we're seeing bullish flow in airlines. We're seeing bullish flow in uh, metals and miners. We're seeing bullish flow in China. And of course, we're seeing bullish flow in mega cap tech. You know, if I can just remember one trade from this week in Amazon, uh, that's been so uh, beaten down. August, a uh, big call spread, 120, 140. It hasn't been to 140 in a long time. So uh, we are seeing investors, you know, if you're a little bit concerned about uh, whether this is another head fake or not, and if you're looking at call and call spreads, at least you know what your max gain, max gain or max losses to those trades. So we're seeing a lot more of that recently. There's Amazon today, just under 102. What about some of these areas? If we said, okay, you know, maybe I'm more concerned about what happens in the fall. I'm putting on those kinds of hedges, those kinds of positions. Do you glean any of that happening? Uh, you know. The fall is a very long ways away, you know, when you have an (laughs) options market where uh, most of the trading is happening in in the first week. I think there's obviously still a fair amount of uncertainty. And, you know, you can look at something like the VIX futures curve. Uh, The spot VIX was below 19 earlier today. But if you go all if you just even go out to this summer, uh, it's closer to twenty three, twenty four dollars. So the uncertainty ramps up quickly. So, you know, I would say investors uh, in the very near term, feel, you know, relatively uh, comfortable. You know, the bank situation is somewhat under control, uh, but a fall is definitely a long ways away, especially for the options markets. Then I I guess the final question I would ask you, Chris, is when you read, when you look at the price action, the other indicators that you mentioned, do you think that the second quarter will look very similar to the first in terms of the market? Um, Yeah, no, I think the second quarter is still, um, you know, the, the volatility levels there have come in a fair amount. I think that, you know, for some dramatic change, like a couple really aggressive inflation prints or for the economy to really fall off a cliff really quickly, I don't think that's really, you know, being priced in. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of like the U.S. economy is uh, the Titanic and it's not really going to shift um that dramatically, most likely in a month or two. So, no, we're not seeing that. All right, Chris, thanks for your time today. Good to talk with you. Chris Murphy of Susquehanna. Let's get to Sarah Malik now. She's chief investment officer at Nuveen. Sarah, welcome. Uh, Maybe you can describe to me, are are you a little more worried now, a little bit less so, looking at the stock market's uh, activity and, and some of the things Chris was just highlighted as we look to close out the first quarter here? Hi, Kelly. Markets are staging a relief rally because no news is good news for the financial sector, 
But what we're current concerned about is that soon we'll shift our focus back to inflation and the FOMC. We're worried that the baton will get passed from rate hikes to a recession. We're focusing on three areas to determine what that recession might look like. That's any future banking system turmoil, um, FOMC and economic data. But our bigger picture view is that the market likely remains in a trading range until we get more clarity here. So we won't be surprised if the S&P goes up to 42, maybe 4,400, but then likely back down under 4,000 to the 36, 3,800 range until we can get clarity. So has the sort of odd twist and turn of the past couple of months where financials and energy are out underperforming healthcare too, and now we have tech in the leadership. I mean, is that then a positioning you would stick with or how does that affect your strategy here? Well, we came into this year with technology as one of our top sector picks at our outlook. Um, but technology, you need to be selective. So we're not talking about the mega cap stocks that have heavy advertising exposures. Those will be cyclical in an economic downturn. But areas such as software, we like ServiceNow as a company. And semiconductors coming off the Intel analysts say, you know, could be more upside there, not only with PCs bottoming, data centers bottoming, and also all the AI uh, noise out there and rhetoric. So it could be good for those areas of technology. Financials have had bigger picture issues even beyond the last couple of weeks. First of all, the sharp increase in interest rates is going to pressure their net interest margins. So even though rates can sometimes be positive for, for financials, not at this rate of an increase. And now with the turmoil that we've seen, we expect tighter regulations around capital and liquidity requirements and more competition for deposits. Bigger picture, also a tighter consumer credit cycle going forward. That's bad for the consumer and yeah. increases the chances of a recession. So does that have you then a little bit more worried about some of the retail names, discretionary, you know, those kinds of, I don't know then where that leaves you on like the industrial cyclicals um, and, and where you, you might go if you wanted to hedge these, the recession outcome that you're kind of warning about or describing. Our focus overall is on quality. So not as much just growth over value, even though growth should outperform if yields start to moderate due to recessionary concerns, but quality across the board. So companies, for example, that consistently grow their dividends, they have strong balance sheets to survive during a recession. These are companies like Linda, even in the material space. You can find those in many areas of the economy. Look for those companies that have those quality characteristics. Those will be the survivors during a recession. If you had to bet, would you say, you know, that this this kind of market rally keeps going and until, you know, something breaks or something bad happens? Or do you think we're going to end next quarter uh, looking back at, at a much more difficult period than Q1? Technically, uh, given where the markets are and the relief rally over the banking sector, there's probably more near-term upside. We do get PCE tomorrow, though. That could be at or below expectations because one of the key uh, risks of inflation has been wage inflation. That has about half the weight in PCE than it does in CPI. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that come in as a as a positive number that helps the bulls tomorrow, keeps this market rally going for a while until we start to see our longer-term view that inflation will stay reasonably strong for a while. Interest rates will stay high for a period of time. That's going to have implications and slow the economy. We're just one year past the first rate hike. We really haven't seen the implications of monetary tightening yet. Uh, absolutely. Sarah, good to check in with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Kelly. Sarah Malik with you. Nuveen. Coming up, healthcare is coming off its worst losing streak in three years. We're going to look at why and whether this three-month losing stretch is a buying opportunity. Plus, the Nasdaq 100 is up more than 20% from its recent lows. It's still 15% below its all-time high, though. Is it a baby bull market in the making or just a head fake by big tech? 
will debate. As we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets. As Dom mentioned, we've given up a 188-point gain to hang on to just a four-point increase for the Dow, up 11 for the S&P to 40.39, and a half percent increase for the Nasdaq. Keep an eye on the Russell 2000s, by the way, down a quarter percent today as some red is across the regional banking sector once again. The exchange is back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Healthcare, one of the safer places to be last year, down only 3.5%. It was touted as a top trade for 2023 as well, but it hasn't quite played out. Healthcare is actually one of this year's biggest laggards. It's down 6%. Uh, that rivals what we've seen in terms of the financials and energy as well. Within the space, biotech is still red, despite the tech run we've seen. It's down 2.5%. Pharma, down 10%, but a little bit of a bright spot. The med tech names up almost 1%. So does this mean that healthcare is a safe place to be in if so, where? My next guest sees more gains ahead for MedTech in particular, thanks in part to a weaker dollar. Les Funlider is portfolio manager for E-Squared Capital Management. Les, it's good to have you back. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So you think there's a real reason that MedTech and, and big pharma and biotech, that we're seeing such differentiation? I do. Well, first, let me just say that um, historically, the first quarter has always been the weakest for healthcare broadly, the big cap. So I, uh, I expect the rest of the year will be a little bit better. I think what it what we, we saw the first quarter was basically a give back of, of some of the massive returns. And they were really good last year, in particular for big cap pharma and for managed care. So it's, it's giving back some. It's not necessarily um, a loss, per se. Uh, but med tech is sort of the reverse. They didn't have such a great year uh, last year. Now they're starting to come back, uh, like you said, weaker dollar. Uh, procedure volumes are uh, improving somewhat and uh, some new products coming. Okay, so let's talk about the names that you like and the conviction that you have. As as you said, healthcare usually doesn't do that great in the first quarter anyway. So if things start to pick up here, where do you think people should be looking? Well, again, I, I would, if, if that's the big if, uh, things start to pick up, and we do actually think they will, but um, med devices in particular, some of the ones like Boston Scientific and Stryker, uh, which are procedure-based, should do better. Uh, others include Penumbra and Dexcom and Diabetes. Um, again, will do very, very well uh, because they have a mixture of growth, but also uh, fairly safe in terms of valuation, um, where we, uh, again, would be a little bit hesitant to jump in with both feet would be biotech, which are still captive to rates uh, and overinvestment. Uh, pharma is likely in the middle of the pack in our judgment. Great year last year, uh, solid dividends, 
But along with managed care, we're going to probably hear some noise out of Washington, uh, which probably amounts to nothing, but will spook investors a bit, uh, at least for the next, say, two quarters, and probably resolves itself towards the end of the year. And I'd add for the last bit, uh, we are starting to look at life science tools. Uh, there's some very cool trends happening in uh, cellular analysis, single cell, spatial, so Cytic Bio and Edex Genomics and Akoya. Uh, all are beneficiaries of the trend. It's a multi-year trend. Hmm. So, um, but I do think there's some concerns about China that have probably uh, put some pressure on them until like third quarter. So finally, where would you say are the riskiest parts of pharma right now? The places that, you know, you wouldn't really want uh, to be playing around if you're not a specialist, I guess. <laughs> well, that, that's almost, that's the easiest question uh, for us. Non-specialist biotech, uh, there are too many of them. They all need to raise capital. It's a difficult time to raise capital. Uh, the IPO market, which we think will get a little bit better in the fourth quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, along with the capital raising environment, is terrible. A lot of them have debt, which we've heard is not such a good thing these days. So uh, I would stay, stay clear of them generally or be very, very selective, both in the company, time, and the position size you take. Uh, we, do own, we have been dipping our toe into one called Biohaven, uh, they've got good data. That would be the playbook. If you had to buy biotech, um, follow good later stage data. All right, Les, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Les Funlighter. Still ahead, you know the old saying, as the transports go, so goes the market. Well, the group is falling behind the S&P this month, and insiders say higher rates are a big part of the reason. We'll tell you why and what else might be behind the decline. And as we head to break, let's take a look across the Dow heat map. With an 18-point gain, we see Intel leading the way again today, now up 10% in two days. Disney up there as well, while Visa, Amex, and J.P. Morgan are all lagging. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets in the green, but just barely in the Dow's case. A third point gain by the S&P, up a half percent for the Nasdaq. Kohl's having its best day since January. After its CEO disclosed, he bought about $2 million worth of shares yesterday, nearly doubling his stake, though it's still mostly made up of unvested shares of restricted stock. Kohl's up 5% today. It's still down about 30% since he became CEO just about two months ago. And remember when Charles Schwab, CEO, told us that he bought 50,000 shares back on March 14th amid all the banking turmoil? Well, today, Morgan Stanley is downgrading the stock to equal weight, saying customers are moving cash out of sweep accounts and into money market funds at a rate of $20 billion a month. That's double what the company was modeling, Morgan Stanley, that is. And the firm expects that to hit Schwab's bottom line sooner rather than later. The shares are down 5% today, down 20% since regulators shut down SVB on March 10th, and down nearly 40% since January for their worst quarter since 2008. And yes, financials broadly are the worst performing sector of the year so far. Communicate. 
education services is actually the best with an 8% gain. Dom Chu has a closer look in today's sectornomics, Dom. And it's about 13% higher than the financials overall. But that communication services sector, as you can see, just from a year-to-day basis, Kelly, is up 18% versus a very modest but respectable 5% gain for the broader S&P 500. That gap has kind of gotten a little bit wider over the course of just the last few weeks here. So it's something to keep a close eye on. Now, one of the reasons why is because there's more of a focus, given the interest rate dynamic right now, some of the stresses in the financial and banking system, on whether or not companies are more leveraged. That is to say, more debt-laden than some of their other peers or even other industry groups. Now, we, we asked the folks over at Charts, they're a market data and analytics firm, and then we asked them to crunch out some of the highest debt-to-equity ratios, meaning the ones that are the most levered in their capital structures to the use of borrowing or debt. Turns out that Charter Communications is one of the highest in the sector at nearly 11 times in terms of overall debt-to-equity ratios. Omicron Group at 1.7, Verizon 1.7, AT&T at 1.4, and Dish Network at 1.2. So more debt than equity on those side of things. But... On the flip side, there's a reason why there's a huge focus on the mega cap technology in communication services names. Among the least levered on that debt to equity basis, according to YCharts data, Alphabet, really no debt at all in terms of overall equity exposure. Meta on a relative basis, no debt either. Activision Blizzard, EA and T2, video game makers, social media and Internet search among some of the least levered companies. Something to watch out there in that debt dynamic as things shift around, Kelly, with the interest rate picture in America. Oh, Back sure. Coming into closer focus, John. Thanks. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. A fire broke out on a ferry in the southern Philippines and raged overnight for eight hours. The blaze killed at least 31 of the approximately 250 passengers and crew on board. Many of the uh, more than 200 people who survived the fire were rescued uh, from it by the Coast Guard, Navy and local fishermen. According to officials, rescuers are still searching for several missing people who are unaccounted for. State uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken releasing a statement over Russia's widely reported detention of a U.S. journalist who wrote, wrote for, writes for, the Wall Street Journal. Evan Gersovich was detained in Russia on alleged spying charges less than two days after he co-authored an article titled, Russia's Economy is Starting to Come Undone. Blinken condemning the Kremlin's actions and also advised any U.S. citizens residing in Russia to depart immediately. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin releasing a statement on last night's Black Hawk helicopter crash in Kentucky that killed nine service members. Austin says he's working with Army leadership to make sure all troops and their families receive the care they need in the wake of that tragic accident. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you, and I'll see you soon. Coming up, the Qs, the triple Qs, are up threefold since the S&P since their December lows. Should you chase the breakout in big tech or will Fed policy outweigh the fundamentals? We'll debate. And throughout the month of March, we're celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is Hallmark Channel CEO Wanya Lucas. What makes me proud to be a woman is watching other women excel. Uh, You never know what you can achieve until you test your limits. I was brought up to believe that if you see it, you can be it. And every time a girl or a young woman sees a woman at the pinnacle of her career, she can believe that her dreams can also come true. 
Welcome back. Tech is the best performing sector so far this year. And get this, the Nasdaq 100 is now 20% off its December lows. Is that a bull market? Wait a minute. Things, are they really as rosy as they might appear? Our next guest is our warning investors not to get too excited just yet. Let's welcome, his Chris, welcome in Chris Senek. He's chief investment strategist at Wolf Research and our very own Michael Santoli. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Mike, let's just get, is it, I don't think it'd be semantics, it's, it's metrics or whatever we're going to say. Um, what is the definition of a bull market versus a bear market? And what is this 20% balance technically called? Well, I would say there isn't one specific prevailing definition of a bull or bear market. It's somewhat in the eye of the beholder. There are some standards. I think that the 20% return off the low is an incredibly blunt one factor not very convincing version of what uh, constitutes a bull market. For example, the longer term trend in the, in the NASDAQ 100 is still kind of flat. The 200-day average has not really turned higher. The index is actually closer in points to its low than to its high. Uh, and I don't think you've necessarily seen the kind of prevailing winds turn to the upside for the overall market to where you're going to declare that the new environment is a bull market, especially with the NASDAQ 100, where two stocks are about a quarter of the mar- market cap weight. The, that being Apple, Microsoft? Yeah. Okay. So, Chris, are you, would you interpret it the same way here? I think we had the setup for a, a perfect bear market rally. You know, if you look at the TMT bubble aftermath, you had four market rallies after the market peaked in March 2000 that were on the order of 25 to 50% in the context of a downtrend. Um, and so I think we can get into the technical jargon of is it a new bull market or, or bear market rally. But to me, new bull markets are formed when there's been regime changes, uh, when fundamentals inflect positively, and we just haven't seen either of those. In fact, I think positioning into early in the year came real negative. If you look at the CFTC, NASDAQ futures position was very negative. The recession that everyone was widely anticipating didn't hit immediately. And then you had the second leg of this rally when you had a banking crisis. And, and oddly enough, or perversely enough, tech is being viewed as, as defensive uh, rather, than, rather than cyclical. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, Chris, what you said there about how a new bull market requires new leadership. And, Mike, obviously we don't have new leadership. We have the prevailing leadership of the past decade. Would you also say that we have to make higher highs or new highs in order to say that we're on kind of a, a new bull trend, Mike? Uh, look, I, I think you could argue that, but if that were the case, then we weren't in a bull market from 2009 to 2013, hmm. okay? We didn't make a new all-time high over that entire period of time. And some people will tell you, yeah, that's, it sort of has to be tested, and then you retrodate the start of the bull market if you want to do that. So I think that, you know, th- the question really for me is, the NASDAQ 100 certainly could eventually prove itself to have been in a, bu- a new bull market. I think it's more interesting to discuss, do the October lows look like they're going to be important? Are they going to be consequential? Are they going to be durable? And how much th- could you fall before you bring those uh, that back into sight? And, and to me, that's where we are right now. It's not so much we're going to make an attack on the all-time highs. It's have we established a new range? And I agree with Chris, the positioning got very negative. It's happened multiple times coming into the year. But that also means that people had over-anticipated bad things, whether it was an imminent recession or whether it was the Fed going to become more hawkish than expected. So the downside that we got to because of the negative positioning was also an overshoot in the short term. And would you agree with that, Chris? And, And where does that then leave us set up for the next quarter? I think the big change in factors was Fed liquidity. And we found a very strong correlation between the Fed uh, balance sheet reserves, 
that they have and report each weekly. We'll get the update after the close today. And the NASDAQ. And I think there was a turn in Fed liquidity in the beginning of the year, and certainly that accelerated in the last couple of weeks, and that's put an upward bid on, on the NASDAQ. And so I think it's been all about the Fed. And you throw in these technical tech trading ranges and relative strength and highs and lows, and, and that matters too in positioning. But to me, the, the biggest turn and, and the reason the NASDAQ has performed as well as it has, hasn't been EPS revisions. In fact, you know, other than Meta and a few semis, EPS revisions from the start of the year have been down, not up. Hmm. It's what's up between, you know, now and begin the year. Fed liquidity, you know, and 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 that's and, and and expectations that the Fed may cut in the back half of the year, and that's what's driven so the Nasdaq. That said, Chris, why aren't you more bullish? You know, because again, to you say you're still bearish, see a relatively deep recession ahead as these Fed cuts hit. But if the liquidity underpinning is now turning, why are you not more bullish on that support kind of being something that stocks can ride higher? So we're in a strange environment. The Fed's. Um, hiking and, and sort of cutting at the same time in a way, right, with, yeah. with, with adding liquidity and, and doing the opposite. And so our view is that what happened over the last couple of weeks is a seismic event. Bank credit is going to tighten. Companies are going to be under pressure. Tech spending is going to get cut. And in the end, tech is cyclical. And we're going to find that out over the next couple of quarters when all of a sudden companies start coming on your show and, and coming out with earnings release and saying, Things just abruptly stall, and 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 we have higher conviction in that now than we did even at the beginning of the year because credit is the lifeblood of the economy, and we're in unwinding what I think is a 13-year zero interest rate tech spending bubble. Well, so that's why we're cautious. Very interesting, uh, Mike. I was just going to give you a quick last word. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little bit less focused on the kind of step-for-step -step move in liquidity uh, as defined by what's going on in the Fed balance sheet and the overall market. The other thing to keep in mind is it sounds so right to say we were in a 13-year zero-interest rate you know, investment boom, but we actually had a tightening cycle in there. It was very stunted, but it got real interest rates up to about where they are right now in 2018, and the market did have a panic off of that. So I don't think it's been necessarily like some spigot that's been wide open since 2008, and we just closed it, and now we don't know what happens next. All right, Michael Santoli, Chris Senek. Good stuff, guys. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, China has reopened. The supply chain snarls are supposedly fixed, but the transports are now facing another round of headwinds, and this time the Fed is partially to blame. We'll get a check on the state of fr uh, freight. I always want to say fright. Uh, maybe it is a fright. That's next. Welcome back. Forget the trucker shortage, the supply chain stoppages. Now rates are the big headwind facing the freight industry. Frank Holland has been speaking with multiple executives, and he joins me now with what they are saying. Hi, Frank. Hey there, Kelly. You know, Dow Transports have far underperformed after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on concerns of the impact of tightening credit and, of course, rising rates for their retail and manufacturing customers. The CEO of GXO, logistics provider for Apple, Nike, and Verizon, says current demand is softening as companies look to cut costs long-term and adjust to those higher interest rates in the near term. Right, right now, what we're seeing is customers are being thoughtful about this softer macro environment, these higher interest rates. But we're also seeing no end of big, strategic, transformational projects. 
Those transformational projects include nearshoring. But trucking rates still falling 27% year over year. However, they are 4% higher than the same time back in 2020, so pricing remains strong. But Judy McReynolds, CEO of ArcBest, expects rate pressure to continue to hit demand. Depending on their leverage level, you know, they will be impacted uh, by raising interest rates. It just provides less cash, you know, to invest in their business and do other things. And so we're expecting that to have an impact on demand. All right. Obviously, there's no exact science to this. Other CEOs tell me they expect a, a soft Q2, but more of a rebound in Q4. Kelly, back over to you. So I, I guess the the bigger story, Frank, is that despite what should now be the, the whole sector emerging from all of these issues strongly, they're emerging from it and facing uh, potentially a demand downturn, a recession, let's call it. Is that the, the gist of it? You know, that is certainly part of the, the gist of it. I mean, volumes have just definitely declined. Number one, people are spending less money. You got to remember during the pandemic, we were just buying things and buying things and even stocking up on things. Also, we're buying more things online. E-commerce requires much more uh, warehousing space and obviously just more inventory. And then there's also the big macro trend of nearshoring here in North America. A lot of companies are just readjusting their supply chains. So while they're in that process, they're, they're having less inventory and just making fewer decisions right now. And they're trying to position themselves long term. All right, Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. Let's get to our next guest who says the freight recovery is well underway, especially for domestic trucking. Let's welcome in Don Broughton. He's managing partner of Broughton Capital. Don, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, everything should kind of be, I guess, people figuring things out now, except for the fact that we're worried about a big downturn. Um, so what are you hearing from these companies and, and what should they do now to position? Well, the, the politicians and press are always worried about something. But uh, the bottom line is you have to look at the facts. The facts are this. The volume of truckloads posted in the spot market have declined from the frenetic levels that we had uh, early last year, but they're still two and a half times what they were at the bottom of, of the COVID uh, quarantines. And they're still higher than they've ever been any time in history pre-COVID. Uh, when I look at spot pricing, yes, spot pricing is down over 30% from the the, the peak it hit uh, uh, at the halcyon days of early 2022, but they remain higher than any pre-COVID levels. And contract pricing, while it's retreated about 5% from the peak, it's still more than 35% higher than it was at the end of, 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 of pre-COVID. Uh, then I look over at rail. rail. Rail volumes, if I look at industrial car loadings, they're up 3% year to date. That's strong. Uh, intermodal's down, but that's for obvious reasons. People aren't switching off uh, the, the highway onto rail because uh, diesel prices have come back down. There's some weakness in some areas, but like commodities that need to be exported, but there are notable strength in auto. Auto uh, volumes are up 11%, and there's four plus years of pent-up demand wow. with the industry max production. You know, crushed stone and sand that we make foundations with uh, is up 12%. Lumber's still down, but it's turned and sequentially started to improve. Steel's up 5% year to date. Chemical volumes are essentially flat, but we're seeing uh, uh, the oil and gas exploration industry in the United States decide it's going gonna, it's gonna to replace Russia as Europe's energy provider. And uh, as it, in doing so, it's going to drive ever larger incremental volumes and that uh, in that industry. Yeah, and it's interesting that actually international freight flows have been weaker than domestic ones. Why is that? What does that tell you? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, 
2021 and 2022, shipping prices, shipping uh, container prices were just, they were ridiculous. They were sky high. Container uh, themselves were in short supply and transit times were unreliable. So that's been addressed. Uh, we've built capacity, containers have become available, prices have returned to normal. And just as that was happening, the Chinese started shutting down entire cities to deal with uh, the spread of COVID. And most supply chain managers had already had enough. Uh, and that just threw salt in the wound, so to speak. And they just, they're saying, look, we're gonna completely re-engineer our supply chain uh, uh, because we just can't do this anymore. And just as that was happening, uh, the, the, to add, make things even worse, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made things even more complicated. It's made it more complicated because first it required the the air freight industry to, to divert flights. You know, FedEx might have over 700 planes, but a triple seven Boeing jet's worth 200, over $200 million. You don't, nobody wants to fly such a valuable asset anywhere near a war zone. It also has thrown ocean shipping lanes completely out of balance. So you have things like the tons and tons of grain and steel that normally were coming out of the Black Sea have just, they've disappeared. And so that throws lanes out of balance. And that's before we even consider the guilt by association that was already occurring, but has only been strengthened by the recent meetings between Putin and uh, Xi Jinping. Um, fears of China's expansionism into Taiwan, yeah. similar to what Russia has done, uh, may not be warranted. But like most fears, it's making people change the way they do things. And uh, that includes finding places other than China to, uh, to source products. And, and bottom so, line, you still like FedEx, XPO, and well, its various spinoffs, J.B. Hunt. Uh, Don, always good to check in with you. Thanks for your always time. Always good to talk to you. Don Broughton. Still ahead, online banking, including the Fed's real-time payment services. It's changed the way depositors and institutions move money. But just because funds move quickly doesn't mean the current bank turmoil will, with the stocks in the red again today. And the Journal's Greg Ipp says the regional banks will continue to struggle. He joins us next. Take a look at the worst performers in the KRE this month. First Republic down more than 88 percent. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We've got some news on the banks out of Washington, D.C. Kayla Tausche at the White House, it looks like, with the story, Kayla. Kelly, the Biden administration is proposing some stricter bank rules that it says would prevent future collapses like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. First and foremost, the administration is proposing the reinstatement of some of the original provisions of the Dodd-Frank uh, law that would apply to banks between $100 and $250 billion in assets. The White House says these banks should keep more liquidity on hand, have more frequent stress tests annually instead of periodically. They should also have living wills or these resolution plans that help them be wound down more easily. And they should also have a shorter transition period to actually come into compliance with those rules. That's currently three years for banks over $100 billion in assets. They say it should be much shorter. They're also proposing some new regulations for these banks. They say stress tests should be assessing scenarios like a rising interest rate environment and what happens when you suffer severe deposit outflows. Those have not been tested 
in the scenarios that the Federal Reserve have put together. They also suggest that banks keep more long-term debt on hand as a as a bigger capital buffer in the case of something like we saw in recent weeks. And finally, they say that the FDIC should be raising the fees on big banks to fund the deposit insurance fund, which has been depleted to backstop the deposits and the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and other banks. Now, notably, the administration says that no changes to legislation or no new laws would have to be written to put forward or to implement the rules that they're proposing today. And notably, they say that they've been in touch with all of the regulators uh, and say that they believe that they support a lot of these actions. But Kelly, you'll notice that that list did not include an increase in the deposit insurance threshold above $250,000. I asked a White House official whether that means that the administration doesn't believe that that threshold needs to be raised and that it won't call on Congress to do that. And a White House official told me that the FDIC will be putting out a report on that by May 1st. They're going to leave it to regulators to decide how to proceed there, and then they'll go from there. Kelly. I'm absolutely the most important point here. Um, Kayla, thank you, as we're showing again some pressure across the banks on that news. Sticking, uh, speaking of which, let's turn to Steve Leesman, also in D.C. There have been a flurry of Fed headlines, Steve. Uh, bring them to us. Yeah, so we have three Fed speakers speaking right now on interest rates, on inflation, and of course on the banking turmoil. Susan Collins from Boston speaking right here at the NAB meeting saying it's too soon to say what the FOMC should do at the next meeting. She says banks are likely to take a more conservative outlook on lending. That's likely to impact financial conditions and could play a role in policy making. Additional bank stresses, she says, could influence policy thinking. Neil Kashkari, Minneapolis Fed president, says we have to bring inflation down. Uh, he says the vast majority of banks have taken interest rate risk seriously. He sees the financial system as sound. It's unclear, he says, how much banking stress will lead to a sustained credit crunch but it could last longer than people expect. And finally, Thomas Barkin from Richmond Fed saying he's comfortable with this idea of going meeting by meeting, determining each meeting whether or not the Fed ought to do a quarter. Now, both of them, uh, Collins and Barkin, had prepared text, and earlier Collins had said some additional policy tightening will be needed. So she's on board with raising rates, just perhaps not necessarily at the next meeting. And then Barkin saying policy will need to be nimble. If inflation persists, we can react by raising rates further. Um, it's probably worthwhile, uh, Kelly, to take a look. I'm going to do that right now as we speak with these headlines crossing. What's happened to the probabilities of a rate hike in uh, May? And you can see it's 46.53, something along those lines, um, leaning towards a hike in the May meeting, but really in between. And honestly, listening to these three Fed officials speak, perhaps with the exception of Kashgari, who really didn't talk about the rate outlook, you can imagine all three of them going either way, depending upon what the data say come May. Yeah, uh, fair enough, Steve. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Steve Leesman. All right, my next guest uh, pretty much agrees with Neil Kashkari in a new article for the Wall Street Journal. Greg Ipp says that despite depositors and institutions' easy access to money, they both should be ready for protracted stress. Uh, Greg, I think I said reporter for the Wall Street Journal. It's good to see you again. Um, welcome. Yeah. And I think there's sort of so a meshing of multi-narratives here, Greg, which I know probably bothers you as much as anybody. Um, but I think what Kayla just said is really important, that until there's some movement on the FDIC front to clarify what the rules are, we're probably going to see the market kind of push this to a crisis point again. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on, Kelly. There's the policy aspect, and then there's, I think, the technology structural aspect. On the policy aspect, I think the Fed and the FDIC have definitely bought time. So long as there's this um, assumption that they'll declare a systemic risk exception and save any banks, uninsured depositors, then I think that sort of like stabilizes things for the midsize and smaller banks. But I think hanging over that, Kelly, are just these longer-term structural factors that are just going to corrode their competitiveness over time. Um, first of all, we know that Silicon Valley Bank was not the only bank that had a lot of unrealized losses on its bond portfolio. There are a lot of banks in that situation. As my colleague Jonathan Weil reported this week, a lot of banks have been, you know, shifting bonds from their available for sale to their hold to maturity category specifically to avoid recognizing that. We also know that there's a surge in deposits over the last couple of years, most of them uninsured. And that what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank is that the easy availability of moving your money around with like a smartphone app means that those deposits are just a lot less stable in the past. If the Fed is going to keep rates high as uh, for a while yet, as Steve just told us, seems likely, that's going to put a lot of pressure on these banks to start raising deposit rates. That squeezes their funding costs and creates long-term pressures. You know what's ironic, Greg, is rate cuts would actually probably do a lot to, to stanch this from getting worse. You know, if they normalize, harmonize to some extent. I mean, Joe Abadi at Barclays thinks another trillion dollars could move into money funds. And imagine what that's going to mean for regional banks. You know, like you said, this is going to be a solvency, maybe not a solvency, but a profitability issue for quite some time. I mean, if you look at the decline in these stocks' prices, Kelly, that's exactly what the market is telling us. The stock, the common equity is really telling us this is what we think the future value of uh, their lending franchises are. We don't think they're worth very much in a world where um, your uh, funding costs are going up a lot. And by the way, if, we can, if, we, if the federal government does extend these tougher capital liquidity ratios to the mid-sized banks, that too starts to squeeze, squeeze them. It raises their cost of capital. It probably reduces the return on their assets. And that, too, I think, represents an existential risk. And then if at some point the assumption of deposit protection is weakened, then what do you think is going to happen? Bankers, uh, smaller bankers and savers are going to say, well, listen, if I need to move my money somewhere, I might as well move it to the banks that the government has already uh, indicated through its actions. It will not uh, allow it to fail. And I think that's just together a very tough set of circumstances for the smaller and mid-sized banks to navigate in the coming decade. Absolutely. Greg, thanks for joining us today. It's well said. Encourage everyone to read the piece. Good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. Greg Ip with The Wall Street Journal. All right. So before we go, we wanted to answer the question we posed top of the hour. Does the data suggest the coast is clear or is there more trouble ahead? Here's where our guest came down on that. As we just heard from Greg, he still sees trouble in the form of a slow rolling banking crisis. Uh, pretty evenly split for now, though. Uh, three and three. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 